This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Shar Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech-language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than I I did. <laughs> okay? Memorize this discount code. It's SHAR, C-H-A-R. Just go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, subscribe, and at checkout, type in what? SHAR, C-H-A-R. You get a $10 discount for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Do it now. It doesn't take long. SpeechTherapyPD.com. You and your speech kids will be glad you did. It's time well spent. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Do understand I would never do this, not in a million years, but I've often thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we took one speech child, a child having difficulty with his or her speech, and in came a speech-language pathologist and worked with the child? And we documented what that SLP did. Then here comes another SLP. And that therapist worked with the child and did his or her brand of therapy. And we documented it. Then here comes another SLP and work with a child, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I bet every SLP's therapy style and implementation, what they would do and how they would do it, would be different and uniquely their own. It would be based on their knowledge, their expertise, and just who they are. And I think that's the way it should be. This week's guest shares her vast knowledge and speech therapy expertise. Get out your pen and paper. Take good notes. Here we go. My guest today is Robin Merkel-Walsh. She's a licensed speech-language pathologist with over 24 years of experience, Robin received her undergraduate and graduate degrees from Montclair University in New Jersey. Currently, she's a full-time therapist at the Ridgefield Board of Education School District, and she has a thriving private practice. In fact, and I think this is very cool, she was elected New Jersey Kids Top Doctors in 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2018. She believes that the training of parents and caregivers is critical. She's also actively involved in parent support groups for apraxia and autism. Robin is a writer, and she has written numerous articles for Talk Tools, The Advanced Magazine, and The ASHA Leader, and has been published five consecutive years at the ASHA Convention. And she's written several books, including two books, A Sensory Motor Approach to Feeding, and Functional Assessment and Remediation of Tethered Oral Tissues. Robin is an in-demand presenter and speaks on many topics. She is a lecturer for Talk Tools, 
Speakers Bureau, as well as an adjunct clinical supervisor at Montclair State University and has taught classes at Bergen Community College. In addition, she is the board chair of the Oral Motor Institute, founded by Pam Marshalla. There's no one-size-fits-all kind of therapy for Robin. She believes in multifaceted, multi-sensory approaches to treatment. And as you can surmise, Robin has varied special interests and specialized training in oral placement disorders and speech clarity deficits in their etiology, craniofacial anomalies, apraxia, autism, applied behavioral analysis, floor time therapy, as well as feeding, swallowing, and myofunctional disorders, Beckman's techniques, and prompt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bottom line is, she has a strong desire to help the kids she works with and to do what works. Welcome to the Speech Link, Robin. Thank you so much for having me, Shar. You were one of my first teachers um, when I was very young and new in the field, and you made such an impression on me. So it's a really amazing experience to have you invite me to do this conversation with you. I'm very honored. Well, thank you. Great. I appreciate that. I am just honored and excited to be speaking with you and learning from you. Okay, here we go. As a foundation to where we're going this very practical hour, I know you've worked with a lot of speech kids in the schools, in your private practice, preschool and older, and some of them have probably been developmental but many of them have not been developmental. What does that developmental term and non-developmental term mean to you? What do those terms mean? What would be a few of those primary traits that you would see in our speech kids? Well, Shar, what I noticed very early on in my career, um, I had the honor and really the advantage of having an aunt um, who was a speech pathologist. She trained at Douglas at Rutgers here in New Jersey. And I never really knew what she did. But when I was at Montclair State University as an undergraduate, I had a really bad cold. And my aunt had to, um, you know, called me and said, I have a care package for you. And can you come over to Building K and pick it up? And I went over to Building K and I saw my aunt feeding an infant with a diagnosis of Down syndrome. I could see her through the two-way mirror when I went over to find where she was. And I changed my major the next day. So I had my aunt there to kind of guide the way. And you may be saying, well, Robin, what does this have to do with the question that I've asked you? Well, it's a really integral part of my training. Because of my aunt, not only was I getting the traditional training in college um, as an undergraduate and eventually a graduate student where I was learning about phonology and how to transcribe the phonetic alphabet and what was stopping and what was fronting and when were speech sounds supposed to come in. But my aunt was kind of taking me with her under her wing to things like state conventions and private conferences. And that is how I got to hear you speak and Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson before I even matriculated. So my mind was already racing and very excited um, about the things I was learning very early on, which was the key combination of looking at structure and function and what that meant in terms of speech sound disorders. So I'll never forget, I was doing... Um, 
a project for my articulation course. And I had been to Sarah's class already. And I went in and, you know, my partner had to pretend that they had an issue with the L sound and they were quote unquote gliding. It was phonological. And I taught my partner, I said, I'm going to show you how to make the L sound. I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to put my tongue tip, you know, to that magic spot or the alveolar ridge or what I later learned was but from Bob Mason um, in oral facial myology was called um, the incisive papilla. I didn't have all of that um, correct terminology back then, but I wanted my partner to show that she couldn't imitate the placement of the sound because I was finding this already with, um, you know, my clinical hours that I would, you know, tell the kids what to do, what it said in the articulation book, and they could not imitate it. They couldn't do what Barr and Rosenfeld Johnson called as look at me and say what I say. And because I had taken Sarah's class, when this partner or my, you know, pseudo client couldn't imitate the sound and couldn't do the placement, I took out a horn um, to try to superimpose tongue retraction to help with that tip elevation. And I got called to my professor's office after class as to where I learned this from and why I was doing it. So over the years with you know, taking more and more oral motor, oral placement, prompt, apraxia courses. What I've come to learn is that a lot of these children do not follow the phonological patterns that we know um, do happen with some kids developmentally. And in a nutshell, um, many times what the red flags are are variations in their structure, which I learned a lot from you early on over 20 years ago when I took your course and you taught me how to look at things from an oral facial myofunctional perspective in terms of size and shape of the head, symmetry of the face, the dentition. So that's a big red flag in looking at are there structural concerns with this child that could be leading to articulation issues or poor speech clarity. And then the second aspect is feeding. While there is not a one-to-one -one correlation between feeding and speech, it's an overlapping system. It may be different neurological triggers, but it's the same muscles. So when I look at a child, I'm looking for, are there structural issues? Are there feeding concerns? Those are going to be red flags for me that this child's not going to respond to traditional methods. And I'm also going to look for consistency in the errors because we know motor execution disorders like dysarthria and dyspraxia will sound very different than traditional speech errors. So for example, if you're having gliding and you're doing the W for L and W for R, in a child with dysarthria or a child with low tone, there's also going to be a lot of vowel distortion that comes along with that. And then with dyspraxia, you're going to have a lot of inconsistency. So it might be a W for R, it might be an L for R, then the R is omitted. So you can tell what methods you're going to need to do with a proper assessment. 
Excellent. So what you're telling me is that you go above and beyond and beneath the speech sound and what you hear or what they're producing. Yes. And you look at the cause, the etiology, so that you dig deeper so that that can give you a good solid foundation as to where to go in therapy. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I feel that assessment is the first key to really finding what the right methods are for a particular child or student, especially in the schools. Um, I think some of us in the schools kind of feel confined by these outlines that the state provides. But in my state, the state of New Jersey, if you look at the outline of what's recommended, an oral peripheral examination is part of that assessment. And I'm very concerned about how many speech and language pathologists are not including um, more detailed oral peripheral assessments because even if we're not being taught a lot of the therapy methods at the collegiate level, I feel universities are doing um, some work on teaching their students that they need to look at structure and they need to look at some red flags for structure. I know I had um, some coursework on mild functional and some coursework on cleft palate. And, you know, cleft palate is a more obvious um, craniofacial syndrome. But one of the, the first things that clinicians really need to seek to be able um, to help these students and differentiate is the proper assessment. And that's why I've been spending a lot of time when I'm doing my webinars through talk tools or when we're teaching our courses, we always spend a lot of time on assessment. And I try to explain to the therapist, I know you want me to jump to the therapy. I know you're hungry for what to do in the session. But if you don't do a really fine-tuned task analysis of both structure and function, you're not going to get the answers that you need to move forward with the therapy. Um, and this has a lot to do with our new book, The Functional Assessment and Remediation of TOTS, functional assessment really gives us the information we need on how to treat. And I do find children um, that have not been previously diagnosed with craniofacial disorders, tethered oral tissue, which includes tongue tie, swallowing issues, oral facial myofunctional issues, such as um, problems with the dentition, like an overjet or an overbite, all of these things are tied together. Um, and if we don't note them the, in the assessment, we're going to assume that the child can respond to traditional methods when we really need to treat the root of the problem. For example, we now know through um, clinical research coming out of Brazil, that a tongue tie um, is formed by collagen fibers that cannot be stretched. So if a child has feeding and articulation issues subsequent to a tongue tie, stretching the tissue is not going to result in full remediation. So we need to keep up on these facts and be looking at research and what the latest studies are so we really know how to move forward and, and drive it home with our therapy sessions. That's very interesting that you say that. I've been kind of, you know, reiterating that for years. And I remember 
oh, this has been maybe 10 years ago, but I was asked by a school district to come in and do an assessment, not on my caseload, to just come and do an impartial assessment, something that the parents were asking for. And I actually, I did that several times <laughs> for that particular school district. Of the several times, four kids had restrictive lingual frenums, so visible that the child's tongue was just not elevating. And these were kids late elementary school, and I even had one high schooler that told me back then that sometimes we just don't look in the mouth. Yes. We just listen to the speech sounds. And that certainly is not everyone. And I think that people are becoming more in tune to actually looking at the, the source of speech, the mouth, but not everybody is. And I think it's just more prevalent than we realize that there are issues there that we need to be cognizant of. Sometimes kids are in speech therapy longer than they should be. You know, instead of being in for six months to a school year, they're in for three or four years. And during that time, they're being pulled out of class. I think it's very sad that we sometimes do that if we just look at the mouth. So, Give us some information here, some insights that you've got into what do we look at? So yes, one is we look at the, the lingual frenum. Um, what are other things that we could look at just to kind of give us an overview of what to do? So over the years, um, I keep developing charts and more charts and evaluation forms and a new evaluation form. And that's okay. It progresses because as I take more coursework, for example, I've done various conventions and trainings over the years in oral facial myology. Like I've mentioned, I've taken your course and I've trained with Roberta Pierce and the Zimmermans and Hanson and Mason. Um, but recently I just did the COM um, certification track with the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. And I trained with Mary Billings and Diana Davidson, which were absolutely fabulous. And I recently attended the IAOM convention in Charlotte. I spoke and I both, uh, and, and I attended the entire convention. And that's made me change my form again. Um, and when I'm doing an assessment, I'm often starting with the whole picture. I want to look at the entire um, cranium in looking at the size and shape of the head. Are there wide facial angles? Are there narrow facial angles? Is the face symmetrical? Are the ears symmetrical? I look at the palate. Is it high? Is it narrow? Is it flat? I look for signs of perhaps a submucous cleft palate. Um, I look at the profile of the child? Is it straight? Is it convex, meaning the um, face is kind of a protruded forehead and nose with the, um, with the chin being retracted? Or is it concave, kind of looking, you to taught me this years ago, Shar, and it stuck with me, kind of looking like Jay Leno um, and having that very pointy, prominent chin. Um, is there jaw retrusion? What's the palatal arch width? Is there a palatine tori? Is it V-shaped, U-shaped? Is there excessive rugae? So this might um, sound new to a lot of therapists, and that's okay, 
because it's something to, you know, spike the interest and explore. Um, I carefully assessed the jaw and dentition, the first molar, um, maxillary to mandibular. What's the relationship? Is there a class one, two, or three dental malocclusion? Is there open bite, cross bite? Um, are the teeth edge to edge? I look for symptoms of dental decay. Um, I look for measurements and how much space there is in an open bite or an overjet. Is there a midline shift? Is there dental wear? Are there signs of TMJ, um, like abfractions, excessive wear and tear? Um, I'm looking at jaw strength. I want to see that child do a baseline on a bite block or a, a bite tube set to see what the jaw strength is like. Because looking at all of this, like you had mentioned, you can't just listen, you have to look. Um, the teeth and the craniofacial analysis are giving us keys to function. Why could this be happening? Um, one of the things in oral facial myology, um, the big foundation is that the oral resting posture and the position of the tongue and the position of the lips is what can really change dental eruption and craniofacial growth. So if you're seeing these symptoms and there's abnormalities, it's a big clue that we're going to find abnormal functioning in the tongue. And that's when I start looking at the soft tissue in the airway. So I wanna look for general, general symmetry or asymmetry of the palate. Is there hypo or hypertonia? Um, I'm looking for any atypical abnormalities inside the mouth. Um, for example, in a baby, there should be nursing pads, but in a five, six-year-old child, there should not still be nursing pads. And I can't tell you how many preschoolers I've evaluated coming into the preschool disabled program that still have nursing pads. I know something's wrong. They're not chewing on the molars. They're not getting adequate tongue lateralization. I look at the uvula. Is it skewed to one side? Is there asymmetry? I'm looking at the tongue. I want to see, is it geographic? Is it scalloped? Is there thrush? Are there fissures? This will tell me that there could be abnormal mastication or there could be um, poor bolus management where the child isn't swallowing all the food and it's causing thrush to develop on the tongue. I, of course, inspect, um, and we mentioned tongue tie, but a lot of therapists don't realize that there's actual seven frena um, in the oral cavity. We have the mandibular um, labial frenulum, which is on the bottom or sometimes called the inferior. We have the buccal frenulum. There are four of them, two on the top, two at the bottom. We have the lingual, and then we have the maxillary labial frenulum, sometimes called the superior frenulum. And there's a lot of... Um, Assessment measures out there, Shar. I like to use for the lip the Kotlow classification system and for the tongue, the Carillos and Jenna. But certainly we have Hazel Baker, we have Martinelli and Marchesin who have some good measurements as well. So that's really important. Location, flexibility, function um, is all part of that. 
and the airway. Um, this is coming up more and more in our field, talking about the tonsils and adenoids, things like a malampati score, and making sure if a child cannot breathe through the nose and uh, how they're not going to have a good oral resting posture because they're going to be mouth breathing. Um, Nicole Archambault is a speech pathologist who's doing a lot of work in this area. She's been featured in the ASH Leader several times, um, really excellent. And we see this in the schools all the time. How many times does it seem quote unquote normal that a child is always congested. You know, pediatricians tell parents this is normal. It's allergies. Kids get sick, but when they're breathing through the mouth and if they have enlarged tonsils or adenoids, those are those kids that you mentioned are going to be in speech two, three, four years and not making any progress. Um, and we can see issues of incompetent airway if we see nasal obstruction, deviated septum, the child snoring, um, if they really have a short um, nasal philtrum or upper lip insufficiency, these are all signals to that. In addition, I'm always looking at oral habits like thumb sucking and teeth grinding and mouthing objects and chewing the fingernails. Um, we have some pioneers in this area in our field like Shari Green, and I knew you've done work in this area, in addition to um, Diana Davidson and Sandra Holtzman, who are comms and um, talk a lot about the importance of um, working on habit elimination. And we do have kids in the schools that are thumb sucking and biting their nails. And if we don't target that as part of the oral, you know, the overall speech program, we're going to have issues. Uh, I also look at the sensory system. Is the child over or under responsive um, to oral stimuli? Do they have texture sensitivity, self-limited diets? Do they have issues brushing their teeth? These are all red flags, again, to um, some of these structural abnormalities like tongue tie or problems with the airway. Mm -hmm. Okay. Woo. Wow. Yeah, all, all of that in addition to function. So I look at um, the coordination and dissociation of the jaw, lips, and tongue and move that right into an articulation assessment. And not only sound, Char, but looking at the mouth. For example, the T sound, it's supposed to be made with tongue tip elevation. If it's being made interdentally, something is going on there. And you can tie that back to the airway, the tongue tie the swallow function. So it all has to go together. It absolutely does. Ooh, that's a great list. Let me add my two cents. Sure. Every single thing that you mentioned gets us back to the tongue and tongue placement for speech sounds. We could even go into swallowing if you want, but let's just stay on speech sounds. Yes. I love to use the terms lingual stabilization and lingual mobilization. And there are two types of lingual stabilization. The tongue operates for all of our speech sounds, except for the two THs, above the horizontal midline of the mouth, up within the dental arch. And you generate lateral margin stabilization. Sides of the tongue anchor on the insides of the top back teeth. More forward for your front tongue sounds, more back on the retromolar pads, for your back tongue sounds, but you've got to have external stabilization. 
You also have to have internal stabilization, mid-tongue contraction, which generates your front tongue vertical movement. Yes. And all of those things, you're talking about an anterior open bite, or whether it's you know the, the breathing issues with the nasal obstruction or thumb sucking, all of those things, all of those things can impact the tongue's positioning to get stabilization and mobilization for speech sounds. That's why we look at all of those things. And then when we're looking at the external piece, like you were talking about, yes, the length of the face and the width of the face and so on, all of that and, and the profile, jaw-to-jaw positioning, all of that gives us information about the mouth because the outside is the framework of the mouth, of the inside. So all of the things that you listed are wonderful and it gives us information about causes and about what's going on right now and about future consequences. So it's so important to look at that information yes, and how it can influence your stabilization, mobilization, which generates your operating zone for the tongue. Lips that are open impacts a lowered tongue and so on and so on and so on. So very, very important. Thank you. Yes. I bet you have them listed somewhere. <laughs> Is there some place we could access them? Right now, I am working on making this available as a resource through the Talk Tool site. We have quite a few resources um, that we put up that accompany our class. Because of my advanced training now in oral facial myology, I am reworking. Um, it's time for a revision of my SMILE program. So I'm including this um, assessment form in the SMILE program, which should be. Um, revamped this spring. Um, I'm currently working on it right now. So once that's up and running, we'll be adding those forms to the Talk Tool website. So I'll definitely keep you posted on that. Um, we also have a very in-depth oral facial assessment in the TOTS book. And it's also online at Talk Tools. If you go to resources to the TOTS class, we have that functional assessment, and it also walks through all of the things I just discussed. And I love what you brought up about the stabilization of the tongue. Um, sometimes we use different terms, and the semantics is a little different, but it means the same thing. And we teach a lot about association and the hierarchy of tongue movement being protrusion, retraction, lateralization, tongue tip elevation and dep depression and back tongue side spread. And one of the things I always say that no one taught me in college is they kept talking about tongue tip elevation, tongue tip elevation, but no one ever taught me the tongue needs to be retracted with stability in the lateral margins of the tongue for that tip to dissociate and be in that plane of movement that you just so beautifully described, Char. So that's our foundation when we're looking at speech sound disorders in the schools, because if we don't look for that, or if we don't recognize that the child is missing that, we can keep drilling S words until the cows come home, but there's not going to be any carryover if there's not that stabilization in the tongue. And a lot of times we just drill the sound, but the child doesn't have the proper placement. He's not getting the stabilization, mobilization. And 
we're not really changing anything. We're going from a an incorrect speech production to another incorrect speech production. Right. Charbo Shard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal? I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now. And so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. Let's move you into therapy. And how do you do some of these things? There's also a couple other things that I want to get to. I know that you had mentioned to me one time about a speech binder, which would be really helpful for those of us in the schools. So I want to get to that, but give us some therapy. What do you do? And you could pick, you know, some speech sounds or a particular kind of child, but give us an example of what are some things that you do? Well, okay. So one thing that's really helped with this and understand that I've changed caseloads over the years. So I started in general education, doing a lot of articulation therapy, which really helped me develop my smile program and OPTS and things with the general population. And then I went to the preschool disabled program and I worked with mostly children on the autism spectrum with a lot of feeding and oral motor issues. My school was very supportive of that in offering these therapies. And now I'm back in the general education setting doing a lot of our tick therapy. So I think the first step is through that assessment, I am able to distinguish and we have a great um, committee in my school that we've put together ESL teachers, speech pathologists, administration, and the nurse. And we look at, okay, if this child is showing these signs of oral facial myofunctional or open mouth or airway, these are the kids that need to be seen individual. If they're not showing that and they're following a more typical course of speech sound disorders, they're having phonological problems, it's carrying over into reading or writing. These are our small group children, and it helps me shape the session. So for example, with my kids who need the oral placement and to do tactile work, I always see them alone. And what I'm doing with them is I create for them a tool bag. 
So I have a Ziploc and I might have some tongue depressors, a horn, a bite block kit. Um, in the schools, what I do with bite blocks, because there's six bite blocks, numbers two through seven, and they correspond with different speech sounds. This could, this could also be a tool, like I know therapists like to use speech buddies, or there, there's various tools out there that assist with phonetic placement of sounds that we learned from Van Riper, right? Use every tool possible. I create a toolkit for them and I put everything in their tool bag and I mark it clean. And then I present another bag and it's marked dirty. So when they come into session, I can use the clean tools and they go in the dirty bag and they go home for the parents to disinfect them. And how I teach the parents to disinfect them is not only do I, do I send a notification home, but at the Ridgefield Public Schools, that's R-I-D-G-E-F-I-E-L-D, schools.com, I have a web, a web page um, for myself. You can search the staff at the Bergen Boulevard School as a resource, and there are resources there, how to help with speech homework, how to disinfect your therapy tools. So the key is a lot of communication with the parents. Um, and as you mentioned, I keep a speech binder. So this is a three ring binder, um, usually about an, an inch and a half thick. And I put five dividers in it. And it usually says communication, newsletter, monthly words, classwork, homework, or it may vary. Let's say for my kids who also have language needs um, and they have language goals, it'll say articulation and language as separate um, sections, or it might have S and then it has R. So I can personalize it for each student. And every time the child comes, I have worksheets available, newsletters available. For example, we started the new year today. I made sure before I left in December that I worked on a January newsletter. Happy New Year. What are we going to talk about this month? We're going to talk about winter weather. What kind of clothes do we need? Winter sports and compare summer to winter and categorize them. We are going to focus on Martin Luther King and friendship and equality. So I let the parents know the subject matters of what the words are going to be about. And I can create a monthly word list with all of these language-based words, but write for the children Number one, please highlight or circle the words with the blank sound so I can write it in. Number two, practice the words three times each. Number three, put the word in a phrase. So I have a list of things that the students can do at home, and I'm able to customize that same worksheet for the 30 students that come because I don't have time to make 30 different worksheets. And that way, everybody's getting the same words, but the children may be practicing different sounds. So they're getting their oral placement or phonetic placement exercises. They're getting word sheets so that they can practice. Um, and you know, Shar, sometimes these are kids with S sounds, but if they're not making T, D, and N with the proper tongue placement, like we were just talking about, if it doesn't look right, even if it sounds right, I might not be assigning S and Z. I'm putting that T, D, and N placement in their IEP goals and objectives. And those are the words they're going to focus on because they're the early, earlier 
developing sound in those lingual sound group. It takes a lot of planning up front, but the great thing about this is once you start working this way and you have this binder and you're organizing things by the month, you can then create a file cabinet. Um, I have a file cabinet that is organized by the 12 months of the year because I do work during summer program with um, the classified students. And over the years, I've built up all these great worksheets. And what I've learned to do is use a lot of products that are open-ended. So I may use a super-duper publications book that's open-ended for our tick, and I plug in my seasonal monthly words, or I can customize it. And then once I do that, I can keep them in that file cabinet. Um, for example, I pulled out today. Years ago, it's no longer in publication, but I published um, a program called Art Talk. And one of the things for January was the Super Bowl. And one page is a football field that the children can color. And then there's footballs, there's S footballs, there's R footballs, and there's L footballs. And the words are already on the footballs. So for a child working on L, it says football, but for S, it may say Super Bowl. And I can work with a group of those traditional articulation students and they all have a similar foundation of the lesson. We're all talking about the Super Bowl. We're all working on a similar project, but each child has a coloring page customized to their personal sound. Um, and you have to be creative like this in the school because with those traditional kids, you are going to get those groups. So again, it goes back to assessment and kind of weeding out, you don't want those oral facial myofunctional kids and those kids with oral face swallowing issues and the thumb sucker and the mouth breather stuck in those groups because that's gonna be the kid that next year they're in speech again and next year they're in speech again. And that's why I developed this committee in my school to weed that out right from the get-go. So they're in the right service delivery model from the start. Very good. Let's let's just say that you're working with a third grader and he is, you know, has an open mouth. Okay. And a bit of an anterior open bite. Okay. What would you do with that child? What would you ask? What would you look at? Where would you go with that kid? Okay. Well, the, the first step is I want to talk to the school nurse and the parent about getting to the root of why is there an open mouth. Um, federal law under FAPE um, does include feeding and medical conditions as part of being eligible um, for special education and related services. So I feel that sometimes therapists are really afraid or they're being kind of pigeonholed by administration, like, oh, you can't talk about that because we may have to send the child to the ENT. But just like we know with voice disorders that we really need to make that referral, I don't treat kids in the school any different than I would treat them in my private practice. So I'm going to talk to the parent about the fact that we need to get medical clearance to determine is this a functional issue or is this a structural issue? So things can go one of two ways. If we find something like a tongue tie, 
or adenoidal hypertrophy or severe allergies that are clogging the airway, usually the parents will want to investigate that through their own medical insurance. And we'll try to solve those problems together because we know if the nose is blocked or the airway is blocked, I'm not going to get anywhere. And what I start doing with that child is oral sensory motor stimulation in getting them to feel the lips close, in getting them to look in the mirror and know what their mouth is supposed to be doing at rest. And I will tackle head on oral resting as a goal in itself. And I'll get the teacher involved. What, what is the mouth supposed to look like when they're reading, when they're writing? And in addition, I'll put in programs that target mouth closure, lip closure, and tongue retraction for both oral rest and speech. So horn blowing with flat mouth horns um, or lip closure horns. Um, and Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson did a great job at developing those. I'll work on that. I may work on something like side spoon feeding to get lip closure. And then I'm also going to pair that with bilabial sounds for lip closure, because that's just as important. Um, we don't want it to be a non-speech oral motor exercise, but rather directly related to speech sound production to keep it IEP driven. All right, good. That's a great beginning. Okay, so that's the anterior open bite. Uh, and, and there's going to be some kids that come through and you know, maybe that open bite was there because of thumb sucking and so on. Do you work with thumb sucking or do you make a referral? What, what do you do with that? It's not as common um, that I see the thumb sucking happening during the school day. And the trick with educational programs is it has to be impacting education. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to be careful in the public school about making outside referrals because the school could be responsible. Right. So absolutely, if the child is having any kind of oral habit during the school day, like thumb sucking, nail biting, I'm going to put a behavior modification program in place, again, working with that teacher, the student, the parent, to help remediate that. Unfortunately, what I find is a lot of times, parents aren't forthcoming, maybe embarrassment, or feeling inadequate that they don't know how to solve the problem. But if I see signs and symptoms, especially calluses or marks on the fingers, I take my time to get to know that parent and student and establish a trust before bringing it up. And then I point them to resources. Um, there is a lot of resources through Shari Green, through Sandra Holtzman, um, through other members of the IAOM at Talk Tools, we have some resources. You have some great resources. So we talk about the different approaches, and I get a feel from the parent of how they want to approach it using, you know, negative reinforcement such as a thumb guard or um, stop it on the thumb versus a more gentle approach in reading something like David decides about thumb sucking and moving forward from there. But sure, if it's impacting education and adding to the articulation problem, I will definitely address it. I've had um, a lot of that work more so with the children on the spectrum and in the preschool disabled program with a lot of 
um, various mouthing objects, including pica, eating things that are not edible and things of that nature. And I have taken that on in the schools. Good for you, girl. Excellent. Would you please, and I'm going to give you two minutes, <laughs> two minutes. And this is putting you on the spot, just a teeny tiny bit. But there are therapists out there that love to do therapy from an oral sensory motor perspective. And yet their school districts poo-poo it. What can you say to those therapists to say to their school? Well, once again, look at FAPE. Um, that's important. Number two, ask for these policies in writing because many times um, administration cannot find that. They'll say, for example, it's a policy that you can't uh, touch the children. Look for that in the Board of Education policies. It often does not exist, either you know, municipal, county, or state level. Go to your evidence-based practice, the Oral Motor Institute, the IAOM, the Talk Tools website, Diane Barr's Ages and Stages, your website chart, excellent resources for looking at evidence-based practice, look towards phonetic placement therapy and the teachings of Van Riper, um, Communication Quarterly 2010, Barr and Rosenfeld Johnson explaining oral placement therapy, the Prompt Institute, has um, new research available as to why tactile cueing is needed for apraxia. The Kasana website has a lot about apraxia and different therapy approaches that are needed. So there's a lot of information out there. Um, therapists really have to be advocates for themselves and what they believe in and advocates for the children that they service. Thank you, Robin. Thank you. Excellent. One more question. We're going to wrap up with this question. And that is, because you've been doing therapy now for at least 24 years, long time. You've seen a lot of kids, a lot of different environments, a lot of different populations and ages. What words of wisdom, suggestions do you have for new therapists coming into our field? Well, I think that College and graduate school is just the tip of the iceberg in training to become a speech-language pathologist. And I think we have to be really careful because universities, often they have professors and professors study their own area of interest. If I was a professor, I'd be doing research on oral placement therapy and oral facial myology. So often, like myself, I had a great education in Montclair State University but I was very pushed towards everything floor time because we had grants from Weathersby and Prezant, and that's what my professors were studying. I left my university training with no knowledge of ABA and had to control really challenging behaviors, and I had to seek that out on my own. So clinicians have to, one, um, know the different method methodologies out there. They have to, too, not believe everything they read because there's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of trends in the field, especially because of social media, to say things like there's no evidence that oral motor works or there's no evidence that a tongue tie influences speech. But when you dig deeper and you look at 
case studies, international studies, studies from other disciplines, PT, OT, dentistry, uh, ENT, you find a lot of information. We can't just look to the speech pathology journals. And I wrote an, um, a, an article for the leader, a blog, about evidence-based practice and how there's five levels. I feel that new clinicians are coming out of school with this mindset that only level one and level two double-blind large case sample research is what counts. And you know what, Char? That's missing in every area of our field because research falls under the philosophy of do no harm. And a lot of times it's very difficult to get a, a good research design. Like, are we supposed to not perform a phrenectomy when we know that patient can feed better to put the child in a study? No, we're not allowed to do that. So I really encourage clinicians to do their own research and not just believe everything they read, especially in social media. And then my second greatest advice is you need to really figure out what it is you're interested in, whether it be phonology, stuttering, swallowing, language development, behavior, and find a mentor. Um, I wouldn't be where I am today without the help of master clinicians such as yourself, Sarah Johnson, Lori Overland, Diane Barr, Roberta Pierce. These were the therapists that helped me when I was one, two, three years out of school. And this is how I started writing so early in my career because I was pushed to think outside of the box. And even if I didn't know a lot about a certain approach or maybe quote unquote, believe in a certain approach, I took the time to go and listen. So, you know, now I focus a lot on my area of interest, but I have to read the pros and the cons of what I'm interested in to really keep abreast on that. And a seasoned clinician, a mentor, is probably one of the most important things that we can have as clinicians. And even now, as I you know, am advancing my career um, in oral facial myology, I've developed new mentors dental hygienists, speech pathologists, ENTs, oral surgeons that are mentoring and training me. The learning char never stops. It goes on and on. Boy, isn't that the truth. <laughs> I am still learning and I have been studying in this field for years and years. I mean, I keep learning and, yes. you know, I learned about all of the oral facial stuff, really from Loma Linda School of Dentistry. And I lived there and talked with many of the general dentists and the orthodontists and the maxillofacial surgeons and, and got to, to be there and see them and talk with them. And I so agree with you, find others to learn from outside of our field, inside, but also outside. And also looking outside of speech pathology, looking at yes. what they're doing in Italy in the field of dentistry is amazing. In Brazil, in Japan, I mean, they are taking the 
oral facial, uh, maxillofacial, neuromuscular issues and running with it. And there's so many good things coming out of there. Not so much in our country anymore. I'm hoping this is a lull. I hope that we get back into it. But it's just amazing what's going on out there. So thank you so much for your advice. Thank you so much for your knowledge. It was great getting to know you a bit. I hope that we can have you back and and continue this great conversation. So thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, Busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charbeauchart.com. It's free. Learn our tech and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it, at charbochart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charbochart.com and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then... Thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well and God bless.